I want to welcome you all here this morning and encourage you to, those of you who get here early, to come sit up front so that the people that get late don't have to parade up in front of you all when they're late. So um, that's a grace note. There are brochures on the table here and out in the front for a conference. It's going to be the weekend after the 4th of July. And I want to encourage all of you to take these brochures and send them to family members, give them to people you work with. Our culture today is desperate for God's fatherhood, and so it hates it. And there can't be neutrality about the fatherhood of God. Either we love it or we hate it. And there's a conference this summer where we're going to be talking about God's fatherhood. And uh, I encourage you to go out and bring them in. The fields are ripe for the harvest. If you had a peach tree with all of the branches hanging at the ground, it's ready to be picked. And that's what our culture is about fatherhood. Um, And so take a few of these, maybe three to five, put them in the mail to your family, invite people to come, and you will be used by God to heal their hearts just by inviting them to come. Trust me. Believe that what God has given you is not a private revelation. But we're supposed to go into the world. So market this. That's spelled M-A-R-K. Right? Yeah. K. E-T. Market. Lawrence? You like that word, don't you? All right. All right. Would you open up your Bibles to... um, And it's going to be very practical. There are going to be things about how you raise daughters if you're a man, a father, how you raise sons, uh, how you prepare your kids for marriage, uh, how you choose their spouses. And I know that sounds weird, but if you come and hear me speak on it, you'll know that it's actually not weird. It's always the way things have worked. Open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians, and you can do it without your children ever knowing you're doing it. That's the main point. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And this morning we have some interesting things. Um, Maybe not what you would expect, but all scripture is God-breathed. And therefore is very, very helpful. Very helpful. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? This is the word of the Lord. Now, to remind us where we're coming from in 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 this section of 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing a church, say it could be Bloomingtonian. He's writing a church, and he's dealing with the questions they ask. They ask questions about whether or not it was right to be single, and he said, well, of course it's right to be single. It's good. 
that a man not marry. They ask whether it's right to get married. He says, yes, marriage is a gift from God. And in the wicked, sexually immoral day that you live in, in the place that you live in there in Corinth, it's right that you should marry. It's better to marry than to burn. Then they ask him matters about marriage. And he says, look, if you're married, give your bodies to each other. Be intimate. Don't withhold your bodies from each other. God has given marriage to you not to be some hyper-spiritual people who think you're above sexual intimacy, but rather as an, a legitimate outlet for your, for your desires. It's interesting, in studying the vows and the wedding ceremonies a number of years ago of the, of the church across the, the English-speaking world, one of the things I found out was that in uh, the 18th century, the Methodists really did not like to have listed in the wedding ceremony the three purposes of marriage, namely friendship or companionship, uh, the propagation of a godly seed, in other words, the growing of God's people, and, and then number three, for the protection of sexual, from sexual immorality. And so they took the third one out. All right, The Methodists didn't like to mention in weddings that this is a legitimate thing to have sex, and here it's protected so that it's in the bounds God gave it. And then in the 20th century, the, um, the Presbyterians took out the other purpose, which was the propagation of a godly seed. They didn't want that in, so they took it out about the same time as the Comstock laws were uh, being overthrown by uh, the Supreme Court in about, around 1950. And so I wonder whether companionship will ever, ever become scandalous. That's the third one that, you know, and so always through history, marriage has been ordained by God for, and you go through the three, well, the truth is that marriage is a gift from God and that sex is a gift from God and that Christians who live in the marriage relationship as God ordained it have the best sex, the most fun sex, the loudest sex. I hope all of you had the benefit of hearing your parents have fun. And I'm serious about that. In the church, we speak about pure things with joy. It's not a sitcom. It's not revulsive and utterly disgusting and degraded. It's beautiful. It's happy. It's joyful. It's loud. All right, I'm moving on. And so he goes through in chapter 7, sex, singleness, marriage, intimacy. Then chapter 8, he goes into the question of whether or not they should eat meat sacrificed to idols. It was an idolatrous day. And meat was so much a part of the idolatry of pagan gods and goddesses that it was hard to eat meat without participating in the cult, the civic religious cult, right? And so at the end of that chapter, and there's a division in the church over that, and some of them think that they're very sophisticated and very knowledgeable and very wise. And they know that these aren't really gods, so they just eat meat. Well, others of them are, wait, wait, we shouldn't honor the gods. They are no gods, they're demons. And so there's a conflict in the church over this. Well, at the very end of dealing with this in chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So yesterday I'm at Sam's, and I'm looking to see which cut of meat is on sale. Now, I don't know if you're aware of it, but for a number of weeks they've had... Uh, They've had, which one is it? Ribeye. On sale for $7.98 a pound. Now, that's not bad for ribeye. But my wife said, you know, maybe we should have um, brats instead. 
And these are good brats. These are from that uh, Rice's, the butcher shop, way out there, a lot of us. If you don't get your meat at Rice's, I'm just going to let you in on a secret. Go to Rice's and get your meat. Would you agree, George? Right on. Listen, I like meat, okay? If you didn't notice it, I like meat. Do you think the Apostle Paul liked meat? I don't know a man that doesn't like meat. His wife might intimidate him into a line. The same way women intimidate men into saying they like their hair short. These little games we play in marriage where we want to defer to our spouse and so we don't quite tell the truth. But I think every man likes meat. And here the Apostle Paul is, and what he says is, look, if me eating meat causes my weaker brother to stumble, if it hurts somebody of a tender conscience in the church, I'll never eat meat again. And so I want to highlight for you, this is no small thing for the Apostle Paul. Picture in your brain never eating meat again. Okay? Picture it. So what's going on in chapter 8 is the Apostle Paul is saying, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ so much that I will put myself in a straitjacket. I will put myself in a prison cell. I will put myself under a discipline that I don't like if it will help protect somebody who's vulnerable, who I'm related to through my father, okay? Somebody that's a par, a brother and sister in Christ. Now, that's how the last chapter ends, all right? And all of a sudden, you have this, like, staccato, boom, 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 boom. Four questions asked, all right? Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? In other words, they're looking at and saying, you're not going to eat meat. What's with this? Are you a coward? Are you so weak? Are you so stupid? Why give in to the nonces, the, the dimwits, the ignoramuses among us? Aren't you free in Christ? And so the Apostle Paul is saying, I am free in Christ. In other words, he's, he's making statements about himself by virtue of asking questions. It strengthens the statement. Of course he's free. In fact, freedom in Christ is a constant theme. And this is so twisted today. America thinks it invented freedom. And it's so pathetic because how could you produce a nation that is as much in bondage as our nation? Have you ever watched television shows? Something has worked in such a way that America is a nation of people that have to watch that stuff. Apparently, we have no choice about it. I mean, how else do you explain the fact that people watch it? It must be a law. <laughs> and then you get into sexual immorality. How do we get ourselves into the point where we have to turn on the computer and look at naked flesh? What, where did that come? Is that a law about being a citizen of the United States? Everybody has to do pornography? And 
And as they do it, be convinced that they're free to look at pornography. Free. I tell you, Satan is a deceiver. What he promises, he never gives. And what he promises never to give, he wastes you with. If he promises you freedom, he gives you bondage. If he promises that you will be happy, he will make you sad. He cannot speak the truth. So every gift that Satan promises to give you, it's the opposite of what he says. If you think that you are making a choice to look at pornography and that you're exercising your free will, you are completely a slave. You are putty in the hands of Satan. And it's very useful to the way our government works and to the way that business works in America for you to be in that bondage. A huge percent, what do they say, 30%? Of the bandwidth of the internet is pornography? How much is it? Is it, does anybody know? Lucas, didn't you send me something on that? Yeah, I don't remember what it was, but it's a huge percent of the internet bandwidth is pornography. And so here the Apostle Paul is, he's being accused of being in bondage because he said, all right, if I can help my vulnerable brothers and sisters in Christ by not eating meat, I'll never eat meat again. And they're saying, oh yeah, now look at you. You're in a straitjacket. You're in a prison cell. You're in bondage. You're so stupid. You're so ignorant. And he says, am I not free? I'm free. In Galatians 5.1, he wrote to the Galatian church, he said it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And so there's always this controversy with the people of God, especially Americans. We're convinced we know what freedom is, we define freedom the way we want to define it, and The minute we choose it, the minute we go under it, we're completely enslaved. And so the Apostle Paul says, look, it is for freedom that you came into Christ. Now, don't be taken back in bondage again. Don't allow Satan to seduce you back to the very slavery that Christ rescued you from. And so the Apostle Paul says, I'm a Christian. Am I not free? Yes, he's free. And then the second question, am I not an apostle? So in other words, he had the freedom to eat meat. Yes, of course he had that freedom. Furthermore, he's an apostle. Well, an apostle was the top office in the, in the early church. They had officers in the church. The apostles were sort of the, the mega officers. They were the ones that went around planning churches. And he says, I'm not just free as a Christian. I'm an apostle. In other words, all the perquisites of my office, all right, I have privileges as an apostle that are above the people who are just simply Christians. And then he knows immediately when he says, am I not an apostle, that all across the church at that time were people who denied that he had any apostolic office. He was always under attack, always under attack, always under attack, always under attack. The apostle Paul was always under attack. So when he asked the rhetorical question, am I not an apostle? 
what he's saying is, all right, I know that, every, that, you know, over in Corinth there are people that say I'm not an apostle. So I can't just ask the rhetorical question. I have to anticipate the objections. Some of them there are going to say, no, you're not an apostle. And so then he goes on and he says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? This was the principal qualification for an apostle, was that he was someone who had himself seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, okay, you say I'm not an apostle. I saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And then in case there were still some holdouts, still some people who weren't willing to grant the point, he says, are you not my work in the Lord? Now, I wanted to preach a, a sermon a couple weeks ago on this because I think it's such a poignant, tender moment. Are you not my work in the Lord? Now, notice that he says, in the Lord. Listen, how many of you have read any uh, Horatio Hornblower or Patrick O'Brien books? You've read them? You know, these sailing books. Okay, you know how... Every single time there is a victory or any reason for those captains to take pride, you remember they never, ever speak of themselves. They always speak in a, in a circumlocution. They, 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 they go around their victories. They never address them directly. And this is something that absolutely, again, is completely foreign to the modern. We have no idea what it is to fear God and to give to him the due that he deserves. And so I, I have to tell you, I absolutely abhor the celebrations in the end zone. I abhor them. They're godless. One of these days, I expect one of those men who's pumping his chest and jumping into the stands and saying, look at me, look at me, it's all about me, to turn into a, uh, what was he turned into? A donkey? Or was it a gazelle? Or What was he turned into? Nebuchadnezzar. It just said a beast, it doesn't say what. And I expect one of them to be turned into a beast because he takes the glory, or, or one of them to have his guts eaten by worms and for him to die. You remember that that's what the Bible says? The Bible says the voice of a God and not a man, and immediately God cursed him and he died. Look at the Apostle Paul. He says, are you not my work? But he doesn't say that. He says, my work in the Lord. You see, it's like those sailing vessel captains, and it's, it's this way of acknowledging that God alone does the work of saving men and women. And man, do we need this today. We think Billy Graham saves them. We think Mark Driscoll saves them. We think that, you know, Robert Schur, I don't know. We think Joel Osteen, there. And listen, no man does anything that is not the direct result of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, if you think about it, how would this be written today if it was the back of a book or if it was on the webpage of a ministry? 
do I not have a $30 million budget? Have I not done study notes for the whole Bible? Have I not four New York Times bestseller lists? Are there not 25 million churches in the United States called Redeemer? Guys, listen. Scripture is profitable. It's particularities. And it's not a small thing that it says in the Lord. The Apostle Paul is not rubbing your nose in millions. He's not rubbing your nose in running 5,000 a Sunday. There's absolutely nothing about what he says here that would appeal to a marketer of the evangelical world. He just simply looks at the people he's writing and he says this. He says, are you not my work in the Lord? Think of a mother looking at her children. And that's what you see with the Apostle Paul. You see this wonderful intimacy where he can just offhandedly say, you guys know what I've done in the Lord. And so he's careful to not take glory to himself and he's careful to make the appeal personal. He's not saying, you know how many people want letters from me and you know how busy I am. He's saying, are you not my work in the Lord? And then in case they still missed it, (laughs) and you can tell how intense the attack on him is, because he still isn't able to just move on. He has to keep making the point. So he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And immediately everybody's going, no, you're not an apostle. You're a jerk. You're a cult leader. You're weird. He says, have I not seen the Lord? And they have to admit he saw him on the road to Damascus. And then he says, are you not my work in the Lord? And all of a sudden it's real intimate, real tender. You know, like, well, (laughs) I guess we have to grant him that one. But it's still not able to move on because then he says, if to others. In other words, I know there's a cacophony of voices all around of everybody saying, it doesn't make any difference that you are, we're not. If to others I'm not an apostle, we're not his work, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. I mean, what a pathetic statement. Okay, if others aren't going to own me, at least you've got to admit. You know, you can't deny it, at least to you. And you think, who is this that's speaking this way? This is the man who wrote most of the New Testament. This is the honor and dignity he had when he was living. (laughs) It's so dignified. You know, imagine Barack Obama coming on national radio and saying, aren't I the president? Are you not my people? If others deny that I'm their president, at least I'm your president. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous. You can't even conceive of Barack Obama saying that. It would be so undignified. And this is the condition of the Apostle Paul. This is what he is reduced to by the attack upon him. I remember many years ago, Elizabeth Elliot, who was a very prophetic She's a prophetess. Actually, I never thought of this. Elizabeth Elliot is another prophetess today. All right? Elizabeth Elliot is a prophetess, but 
she had, she had some failings, as every man does, speaking generically. And Elizabeth Elliot once said to me, I, I, I was talking to her about coming and speaking on manhood and womanhood on the campus of IU, and she said, oh, Timothy, I don't want to do that. And I said, why not? And she said, I'm just so tired of people hating me. She said, give me another subject. I said, but Elizabeth, the reason people hate you is that's the most helpful subject for you to speak on. <laughs> so speak on it, you know. And so I asked her something about how she felt being attacked by evangelicals for it, and she said, well, I never defend myself. And I thought that that was such a wonderful statement. I never defend myself. I mean, why would you ever defend yourself? What a waste of time. What's the Apostle Paul doing here? What's he doing? Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He's defending himself. He understands that you can't give away your own personal office of apostle, fruit of the people and the churches, without giving away the work of the Holy Spirit. God is ordained the work of the kingdom to be such that it is impossible to separate his work from particular men and women. You can't do it. So if you're above defending yourself, what you're really doing is being above defending the work of God. Do you understand that? You can't be above it. It's the humble man who fights today. The humble man doesn't sit around and say, I don't need to defend myself. That's pride. If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You think of that church and how sick it was. And yet, there was faith in Jesus Christ. And you know what I think is the best indication of the, of the church of Corinth and how godly it was in the midst of its sin? The best indication is the fact that Paul was able to write a letter like that to them. You know, think of them getting this letter that's like the equivalent of your mother coming up to you, whop, 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 whop. The whole letter is like that, you know? And it says something good about the church in Corinth that they received the letter. He wrote the letter. He expected them to receive the letter. It says something good about you if your elders bother to rebuke you. And if you're here this morning and no elder here has ever rebuked you, that says very, very negative things about you. Almost certainly what it says is that the elders of this church consider you to be someone who is unteachable. And so the Apostle Paul is bat, bat, bat. You know, you go through the book and it's just one slap after another. And in between them, endearments. He loves them. Wop, wop, my sweethearts. Wop, wop. You know, that's the book of Corinthians, right? And then he says, you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine, that's a very technical legal term, my defense. All right, okay, fine. We're going to mix it up. Let's mix it up. Choose your weapon. My defense. My defense to those who examine me, those that accuse me, those that scoff at me, those who examine me, all right? By the way, 
you realize that the Apostle Paul was completely despised in his life, right? I made that point earlier, right? I'm so glad that I, now I'm being facetious, okay? Tongue in cheek. I'm, I'm so glad that I live in a time when the Apostle Paul has finally assumed the dignity that he deserves. <laughs> Do you guys realize how much we despise the Apostle Paul today? The very people who claim that they honor the word of God despise the Apostle Paul today. They don't despise him because he says, if it's going to hurt people, I'll never eat meat again. Today they despise him because he says that women should learn in submission and quietness. He says that the husband is the head of the wife. He says everything that could be perfectly designed today to cause us to go to ballistic. And so today we don't attack him for, eat, for not eating meat. Today we attack him for saying the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. We attack him for saying that a woman should not teach and exercise authority over a man. For Adam was created first and then Eve. And it was not Adam that was deceived. But the woman was deceived and took of the fruit and ate. And so today, you know how people talk of the Apostle Paul? Do you know how I talk of the Apostle Paul? Have you noticed that from the time we began the book of Galatians, every single time I refer to him, what do I say? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. I'm so tired of writing it. A-P-O-S-T-L-E. A-P-O-S. I don't even have, I have no idea how many times I've typed that. Why do I do that? I do that because in our day, all the pressure is brought to bear on me to simply refer to him as Paul. And that's the way every church in the country refers to the Apostle Paul. Every church says Paul, 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 Paul. And yet, when Ben and Michael are at our house last night and I tell little Zion I'm tired of him messing up my sliding glass door and would he please keep his hands off the glass? And Zion sort of acts as if he's kind of listening to me. His father, Ben, looks at Zion and says, Zion, Bapa spoke to you. What do you say to Bapa? And Zion says, yes, Tim, Paul, Tim, Paul. Yes, Bapa? Uh-uh-uh-uh. In Ben's home, it is what? Yes, sir. And then he got yelled at for not smiling while he said it. <laughs> Listen, we still hate the Apostle Paul. We still deny his office. We still deny his authority. We still refuse to submit to him today. We have a man in this church who recently was talking to an honored professor over at the university. And that honored professor spends his entire life attacking the Apostle Paul. That is his scholarly discipline is attacking the Apostle Paul. And we have a man in this church that spoke to him about his soul and said to him that he should fear God. And so guess what? He got in trouble. Defend the Apostle Paul. If he looks at you and he says, through my letters, at least I'm an apostle to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship. 
And then he goes on and he says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? And I want to end with verse 5. So he's talking about meat sacrifice titles. He's talking about putting himself in a prison cell in a straight jacket in, under constraints because of it. And then he sort of, it's kind of weird, but he kind of slides over into another subject. All right? And the new subject is, look, I'm not only an apostle. You're not only my work. I not only saw Jesus. I'm not only a Christian and free. But listen, you guys owe me my food and drink. And that's where we're going to go now. You guys owe me my food and drink. That's what this is about. My, do we not have a right to eat and drink? And what he means is, don't I have a right? Don't you have an obligation to feed and drink me? Don't I have an obligation or don't I have the right to say to you, you should feed me. You should give me something to drink. And then he goes on and says, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Shouldn't you feed me? Shouldn't you give me to drink? Don't I have a right to take along a believing wife just like the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? In other words, you just don't owe me food and drink, but you owe my wife. Don't I have the right to have a wife that I take along? Now, we know the apostle Paul did not take a wife around and make people support him. First of all, he supported himself. It was rare that he allowed anybody to pay him anything. All right? But we also know from this text what? Notice, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Well, it's a right that he didn't avail himself of. But then he says, even as the rest of the apostles. In other words, the rest of the apostles what? The rest of the apostles took along believing wives. Now, right now, all of you want me to avoid making any comments about this. Why? <laughs> Scripture is so helpful. If we had a group of Christians who decided that they were going to be more spiritual than God, how would they show it? Well, the way they'd be more spiritual than God is they'd become what's known as ascetics. And they would either not marry and claim to be celibate, or they would get married and never have sex with their wife. And then they'd parade around with sad faces because they were married, but they couldn't have sex with their wife. And then you'd have the early church. You'd have the church in the apostolic time. You'd have a church that had this standard that for those who were going to lead them, they were not to get married, and if they were married, they were to abstain from sex. And if they kept doing that for 2,000 years, you'd have the Roman Catholic Church today. Now, you know why I said you don't want me to say what I'm going to say. Because why would I demean another denomination, another fellowship, another ecclesiastical communion. Here's the reason. If you were a man who was very proud, so proud that you thought you could live without benefit of a wife, are you with me? So proud that you would be pristine in your singleness, above the grunt things that other men do. All right? 
And then you pass that on from generation to generation for 2,000 years, all right? And then, all of a sudden, lawyers got involved and thought they could make a little money off your hypocrisy. And so they began to ask questions, began to find a bunch of people in your church who said that you had actually molested them as little boys. And pretty soon the news guys, who always like a scandal, began to write articles. And then pretty soon the entire nation of Belgium, the entire church, the state church, of pretty soon the entire nation of Ireland, whole cities, whole archdioceses, were going bankrupt because of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of million dollars paid out to people who were abused and molested by the super spiritual men who were not allowed to marry and were supposed to vow celibacy. And then you come, just incidentally, all right, on May 20th, 2012, at Clearnote Church Bloomington, to this verse that says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles? Are you with me? Don't you think that the point should be made that the apostles were married and that they took their wives along with them and that they had sex with them? And so the Roman Catholic Church is wrong. If the apostles had believing wives, in the main, most of the apostles, that they took along with them, that they traveled with, you know what was going on. In other words, remember how in chapter 7 I said, if you're single and you have this superiority about how you have a calling to singleness and you're immoral in your private life, you have no calling to singleness and you are to get married. That's what the Word of God says. All right? If you're married, you don't have a second-class position. You're not inferior to those that have the calling of singleness. Don't try to struggle to attain a level that God has not made for you. If you're married, you know what God has called you to, and that's to be intimate with your wife, your husband. That's what you're called to do. It's beautiful. It's extremely spiritual. And so if you set up a standard for all the ministers that they're not to marry, that they're to be celibate, how do you defend this when you see the apostles most of them had wives that traveled with them. Where does the Roman Catholic Church get off? I was talking to a woman of this church this last week. She was telling me about a priest that she grew up under. And she said this priest had altar boys everywhere. Every young boy in the community was one of his altar boys. And he was a strong, good priest. And then what? Well, of course it came out later. The reason he had all these altar boys is that he was, he was a pervert. And then when we have Roman Catholic friends and we read the news and we invite them to church and we want to somehow give them the gospel without pointing out that the apostles were married and took their wives with them. So let's assume that the normal experience of Roman Catholics around the world is what you read in the newspaper and what we have in our own congregation. Let's just assume that. If that's the case, and if the Holy Spirit is working with them, 
don't you think it's possible that my preaching this point from this text would be used by the Holy Spirit to regenerate them? Imagine being the mother of one of the victims of a Roman Catholic priest. The explosion of freedom in Christ that you have. When you see that the leaders of the church are supposed to have wives they take with them. That that's how God ordained it in the early church. And that's still the case today. And anybody that thinks that all the priests shouldn't have wives is completely unbiblical. So what gospel do you want me to give to them? I mean, you get my point. You want me to pare that off of the gospel. Just, just take that verse off, you know. Just give them the straight Jesus. No, 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 no. I'm not going to do it. If the Bible says that most of the apostles had wives that they traveled with, that is gospel material for Roman Catholics today. And if you can't see that, I think you're blind in one eye and can't see out of the other. <laughs> you see this? Now... Listen, one more thing and then we're done. If that phrase was helpful, how much more helpful is the next phrase? <laughs> and the brothers of the Lord. Oh, come on. So the Roman Catholic Church not only says that all of her spiritual leaders must be celibate, well, not all of them, but the priests, the archbishops, the cardinals, the pope, all that. But it also says that Mary never was intimate with a man. And it says that she had an immaculate conception, not of her son, but of herself. She was without sin. And so the Roman Catholic Church says that Mary was without sin and without sex. And now do you understand why in the Middle Ages the Reformation was an explosion of children? Because all of a sudden, the Protestants said, you know, enough with this fake, perverse, godless sexual morality of our spiritual leaders. Martin Luther, get married. John Calvin, get married. And all of a sudden, the dignity of the father of the household, of his catechizing his children, of his being a steward of his wife, all of a sudden, the people could see in the ministry of their pastors, their shepherds, what it meant to be a father. It wasn't an appellation given to some eunuch wearing dresses. It wasn't a eunuch anyhow. Okay, you see this? So Mary, according to the Roman Catholic Church, neither had sex nor sin. And yet what this says is, this says, do we not have a right to take along and be even white, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord? Now, if you know Greek, you're going to say to me, well, the brothers of the Lord doesn't necessarily mean nuclear family brothers. It could be that Joseph had children by a prior marriage. It could be cousins of Jesus, extended family. I say that's absolutely true. But listen. If a particular religious organization were to want you to pray to Mary and to use her as an intermediary with Jesus and then to God, if they were to try to create a commitment on your part to that woman, if they were to teach you that she was without sin and without sex, you'd feel a little bit dirty going to bed with your husband, wouldn't you? 
You'd wish that you could be married because being married to a man is such an onerous task. And you'd think, you know, I feel good about Mary. Even if you were a man, you'd feel good about Mary. And so you would use her as the mediatrix between you and God, although there's ways of explaining it in such a way that it's not worship she receives, but I forget the distinction. What, what, what's the distinction? Huh? Ador- veneration instead of adoration, or doxia versus paradoxia, or something like that. <laughs> okay. And here we see a text that says, brothers of our Lord, are you with me? And if you had a church that was built upon her never having sex, Mary, and her never having sin, and then you came on this text, wouldn't it surprise you? Wouldn't you think that the Holy Spirit, if praying through Mary, all right, I'll, I'll grant you through, if praying through Mary and having a picture of her as being without sin and without sex was important, Don't you think that there would be a way that you could write that verse in such a way that it didn't leave any confusion about whether or not Jesus had brothers? Couldn't you have said, for instance, if these are the children of Mary, Mary's sister, couldn't you have said the mother of our Lord's sister's children? Or couldn't you have said Joseph's children by a prior marriage? Or couldn't you have just shut your mouth? Do you understand what I'm saying? If this central doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church is so as they teach, and if it's so important as they teach, why does Scripture give absolutely no support to it? There's no support to it. As a matter of fact, listen to this. Here's the kind of support that the Bible gives to this doctrine of Mary. It says this, when, excuse me, it's in Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, it says, And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and, what, took Mary as his wife, but, what, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Listen, you guys, all Scripture is God-breathed. Don't try to give your relatives, your friends, your neighbors just the clean gospel without offense. If you have a neighbor whose brother was molested by a priest, can you imagine how liberating it would be to hear that the apostles were married? that the Bible refers to the brothers of our Lord. And all of a sudden you realize that this attempt to enforce celibacy on men that don't have the gift of celibacy, the courts prove it. All of a sudden you're liberated. You have freedom in Christ. You can be a pastor and be married. As a matter of fact, you can be a pastor and be married to a fox. Listen, it's very difficult for us to trust the Bible. It's it's hard. Because the Bible's particular and specific. But every one of those specificities is given to us for a purpose. Trust them. 
Use them with your Roman Catholic friends and relatives. Use them. Don't avoid the place where Scripture crunches the people you love. Focus there. Focus there because that is the thick wall of their conscience in their heart. That until the Holy Spirit does the work, it will never give in. But when the Holy Spirit does the work, after that, who cares about the doctrine of justification? It's no big deal to them. They'll completely repent of infusion. They'll go completely hog wild about imputation. And if it's the doctrine of infusion that they really love, focus there. Who cares about the doctrine of priestly celibacy? Once they get imputation, they'll be hog wild on everything else. (laughs) You know? In other words, trust the specifics of the Bible. Trust them. God has been very, very kind to us in giving us every single word of the Bible, and every one of those words is helpful. Okay? Does that make sense to you? All right. It's hard. I mean, trust me. I'm up here. I know who's Roman Catholic. And you should, you should be in my brain. You should see me as I'm preaching. Am I? No, I'm not. Am I? No, no. Well, you better. No, I don't want to. Oh, but what will so-and-so think? Oh, no, no. What would so-and-so think? You know, this is the life of the minister. You wouldn't believe these, like, back and forth in your brain as you preach, you know? Well, then elder so-and-so will be upset. Yeah, but so-and-so might repent. Yeah, but... All right. This really is my final point. Listen, there's one other thing you got to see here. Everything the Apostle Paul is doing is saying, I give up my rights for the sake of the church. Are you all with me? Everything the Apostle Paul is saying is, I give up my rights for the sake of the church. All right? And I want to ask you, are you a person filled with your rights or filled with service? What, What are you? Is your mind just constantly churning about, I have a right, and my rights are, and I have rights? Or are you looking at your brothers and sisters in Christ here and dying so that they can live? I thank God that when I was a a young man, I would say to my mother often, because I was American and an evangelical, I would say to her, but I have a right. And she would, every single time, my mother would look at me, and she'd get disgusted. Honestly. And she'd go, Timothy, you have no rights as a Christian. Okay. Okay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that the Apostle Paul lowered himself to defend himself. Thank you for his faithful rebuke of them and of us. Thank you now for this table where we can eat and drink from the body and blood of our Lord and be healed and strengthened. Help us to live by faith in the word of God and not to try to make the gospel inoffensive, but to trust the specifics of your word as we do our work of being witnesses to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.